So, if you have been with us for any amount of time, you know that we've been walking through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And if you've been following along closely at all, you know that we have just a couple verses left, and we will we will be done with this series. So, I'm going to close out Second Thessalonians today, and then we are going to move on. So, if you would stand with me, and we will read the last three verses. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. These are the words of the Lord. You may be seated. So, uh, if you're like me, typically when you read through um, the books of the Bible, specifically Paul's epistles, you get to a section like this um, where it's, he's basically signing off. Uh, if you read just really quick through the letter, it seems like these last three verses, he's just kind of signing off sincerely, that type of thing. But, you know, 2,000 years ago they did it a little bit different, so they're a little bit more wordy. And that's basically what's going on here. But if you look a little bit closer, and if you think back about not just 2 Thessalonians, but 1 Thessalonians as well, well, and think about all the things that Paul was saying to the church in Thessalonica, uh, you see these verses a little bit differently. And so this morning I'm going to focus on verse 16. Um, The Thessalonian church was encouraged by Paul in so many ways. Right? There were so many ways in which he affirmed them. You are doing great in this area. Continue. Increase in this area. And there were also a few areas where he felt like they needed correction, some redirection. Uh, so when he ends his uh, letter, to the, the second letter to the Thessalonians, he closes it. Uh, in verse 16, he says, Now may the, the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Now, if you think about this church, right? This church in this town, Thessalonica, and all the things that he wrote to them and what we know about them based on the book of Acts, there was a lot going on. There was some pretty intense persecution and there was uh, all kinds of attacks coming within the church in the form of um, false teachers. So these people were being bombarded from all sides, inside and outside. They went through a lot of stuff. And I think that if there's one thing that has always existed in our world is that there are a constant barrage of things around us claiming to bring peace, right? I mean, if you and I can think about this in our own lives, uh, it's November. I mean, it's always, it's almost November, but it feels like November because of all the mail we're getting, if you know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, the midterm elections, everything's going on. And what is the heart at what every politician promises? peace, right? We're going to restore peace. We're going to restore uh, the, the balance to the budget, which obviously is a promise of peace because, you know, you know, that's just the way it works, right? Politicians promise peace, peace that they cannot deliver on. The entertainment industry promises something that it cannot deliver on. Every commercial you watch on television promises a peace that it cannot deliver on. Everything around us promises peace. Everything. 
And this isn't new. I mean, the ways that it works itself out might be new. But this isn't a new phenomenon. This has been happening since the beginning of time. And so when Paul, in verse 16, says, Now may the, the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and everywhere. The Lord be with you all. That is a significant prayer. It's significant because Paul understands that there is only one source of true peace. There's only one way that we can actually get true peace. And as we've seen throughout the first and the second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul's main concern to his own detriment is others. Whether he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, whether he's writing to the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, on and on and on. Paul pours himself out for the sake of others. And his prayer for them is that they would receive peace. Not any peace, but peace that is given by the Lord of peace. Now, if we're going to talk about peace, anytime we're talking about a specific word in Scripture, that is also a word that we use and we recognize uh, that our world has a definition of peace. Right? Again, when we, when we hear this word and this idea spoken of by politicians, by the entertainment industry, all the, the world around us speaks of this idea. They have a certain thing in mind. So, um, the world defines peace as calm, tranquility, quietness, contentment, a lack of conflict. Peace, right? Right? World peace? When we think about peace as the world defines it, there are certain things that come to mind. But you and I, as followers of Jesus, must have a different definition of peace. Because Paul's praying for peace for people that are not in a situation that lacks uh, conflict. They are not in a situation that lacks suffering. They are not in a situation that lacks trials. So when Paul prays for them to, to have peace, is he praying for all those things to go away? I don't think so. I think it's pretty obvious what he's paying, praying for. He's praying that the peace that they have from Jesus would be in spite of all those things. Here's the problem with worldly peace. It can be easily destroyed, right? Think about this. Um, what, the, what the world defines as peace can be found through lies, self-deception, the absence of conflict, uh, drugs, alcohol, even a good night's sleep. What the world defines as peace, you and I can find in the next five minutes. It's easy. The problem is that it can be taken away just as easily. It doesn't have any legs. It's not real peace. Failure, doubt, fear, bitterness, anger, pride, difficulty, guilt, regret, sorrow, anxiety, bad decisions. Anything that threatens my security can rob me of the world's definition of peace. Anything. 
So we say again, it's not real peace. It's a mirage. It doesn't last. It can't fulfill on its promises. It is not peace. But Paul prays for a peace that's guaranteed by the God of peace. He prays that they would have peace that's given by the Lord of peace. So if we have saving faith in Jesus, we believe that he can deliver what he says he will deliver. And so the peace that he gives can be true, lasting peace. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, Paul talks about this kind of peace. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, here's an interesting thing about, uh, we're just, we're just going to call it divine peace. Paul says it surpasses all understanding. It surpasses all understanding. You can't really explain it because it can't really be understood. It surpasses all understanding. It's not a human peace. It's a divine peace. It's not something that we possess. It's something that's given to us. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace. We see him described that way over and over and over and over and over. And this peace can only be experienced by those who trust God. This peace cannot be experienced by the world. It is impossible. The world can experience um, a truce. It cannot experience true divine peace outside of Jesus. It is impossible. One of the commentaries I uh, studied this week um, kind of said it this way. It is peace. It is the deep, settled confidence that all is well between the soul and the Lord of peace because of his loving, sovereign control of one's life, both in time and in in eternity that calm assurance is based on the knowledge that sins are forgiven blessing is present good is abundant even in trouble and heaven is ahead the peace that god gives his beloved children as their possession and privilege has nothing to do with the circumstances of life we have to understand that while we are in this world we are not of this world right we are a people of god's own possession We are his children. So the things of this world cannot touch us. They can't. Over and over and over we see Jesus speaking into this, don't we? In the Gospels, Jesus talks about this idea constantly. Uh, And he doesn't always use the, the word peace. But when Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid of the person that can kill your body and can do no more. Don't be afraid of that guy. You have nothing to fear. Can you imagine if we were able to live our lives this way? I mean, forget killing, right? Don't, don't be afraid of the guy that might say something bad about you. That might be more apt in our society. 
Don't be afraid of the person that might reject you. Don't be afraid of the person that might um, not want to be your friend anymore. Because if we're honest, that's where most of us live. The quality of our peace is determined by its source. That's what we see in Scripture. The quality of our peace is determined by its source. So if I'm looking for peace in my cell phone, that's the kind of peace I'm going to get. It lasts about 10 seconds. But I'm looking, if I'm looking for the peace that Jesus offered the woman at the well, right, the living water that quenches forever, will never be thirsty again, if that's the peace I'm looking for, then I have to go to the source of that peace to find it because I won't find it anywhere else. And so this is where our lives as Christians start to come into focus. This is where uh, the, the idea of following Jesus comes into focus. If this is the kind of peace that we want, we will pursue this kind of peace. And there is only one source. If we, if we understand and recognize that there's only one source, then we will do what it takes to find that peace. We will go to that source. But the problem is, as uh, at least for us as American Christians, most of us want this peace without going to the source for it. Yeah, I know Jesus. I go to church once a month. Why don't I have peace? We are not pursuing it. We're not chasing that peace. We're chasing uh, peace in all the other ways that the world does and yet claiming to try to find it in Jesus. Jesus talked a lot about that too. We can't live double lives. We can't serve two masters. There's only one source of divine peace. And it starts in Genesis. Right? I'm not going to go all the way back to Genesis. We're going to go to Isaiah though. Isaiah chapter 9. It's appropriate that we're talking, uh, I mean, it's almost November. So uh, my daughter broke out Christmas music yesterday. Um, Because it's raining, so here we go, right? Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus came to bring peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Wait. Of the increase of his, of his government and of peace, there will be no end. There will be no end to the increase of the peace that Jesus brings. That's what the prophet Isaiah just said. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord of the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do what he just said in Isaiah chapter 9? Yes. That means, and this is so this was part of the problem. So when Jesus actually shows up in the flesh and 
and is claiming to be the Messiah that was promised in Isaiah, uh, the, the Pharisees, the people of Israel were looking around going, well, I still see Roman soldiers. There's no peace. And Jesus was constantly trying to get, read through the Gospels, Jesus is, is constantly trying to get them to understand that the peace that he brings is much, much deeper, much, much more permanent than their physical circumstances. And they wouldn't accept it. And they rejected it to the point of killing him. The peace that Jesus offers you and me is despite what goes on around us, not because of it. This is one of the deepest truths that you and I have to understand as followers of Jesus. Jesus promised that we would be persecuted. He promised that trials would come. He promised that we would suffer. But he also promised peace. So either Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or the peace that he's promising has nothing to do with our circumstances. And I think as we read through the scriptures, it's obvious which one of those it is. Right? So if we go from Isaiah chapter 9, let's fast forward to the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. So Paul right now is writing this letter to the Ephesians, um, speaking mostly to Gentiles, right? So he was, he's saying to them, you were separated. There was this covenant people of God, the nation of Israel, and you were outside of that, right? But now, In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is what? Our peace. Jesus doesn't give us peace that he possesses. He gives us peace that is himself. He is our peace. He doesn't just have our peace. He is our peace. Who has made us both one. Who? Jews and the Gentiles. This is crazy. In the world that we live in, uh, that's constantly and violently striving for racial reconciliation, racial peace, Ephesians chapter 2 is where we find it. The only source of racial peace is Jesus. Because he breaks down the walls of hostility. He's broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we have peace with each other and we have peace with God. The hostility has been killed. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to, in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the foundation of our peace. This is what Paul was praying for in in 2 Thessalonians 3.16 when he says, may you have this peace, the God of peace, give you this peace. This is the peace that he's talking about. The peace that cannot be shaken. A peace that cannot be taken. 
a peace that is guaranteed, promised, secure. Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. So all the things that we're afraid of, created by him, through him, for him. Pretty good source of peace. If we're going to look for peace somewhere, pretty good place to find it, right? And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Big word, we'll talk about it another time. For in him the fullness of God was, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Peace with God, peace with each other, all found in Jesus. Not the absence of conflict. Not the absence of suffering. but peace that is bigger than those things. Peace that sustains us in spite of those things. This is the peace that is promised. Now, who is the source of this peace, right? So in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says that, the, that God the Father is the God of peace. We already read that Jesus is referred to the Lord of peace and the Prince of peace. In Galatians chapter 5, we have the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Anybody want rec- to give a guess what's included in the fruits of the Spirit? Peace. Romans chapter 14 says, 14 says, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the triune God that we serve, the triune God that we believe in, is in itself, in himself, the ultimate source of peace. Daily peace. Peace is such an important part of the New Testament that it appears in the greetings of all of Paul's letters. Right? As well as 1 Peter, 2 Peter, uh, Second John, Third John, Jude, and Revelation. They all talk about it constantly. And if we look back, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis 1 and 2, what did we have? What our Jewish brothers called shalom. Peace. Genesis 3, what happened? That peace was broken. And the entire... The, the entirety of the Old Testament is the story of people trying to get that back and constantly choosing the wrong ways to find it. This is the central, a central theme in the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Peace. Because we all want it. We all desire it and we were all built for it. But we have to understand that there's only one place to find it. Only one. But, 
that requires that we know Him. Having this peace, experiencing this peace, requires that we know the one who gives it. And here's the problem. So I'm transitioning now. I'm transitioning out of First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, a, an article was published a couple weeks ago that a Christian ministry did on um, just kind of the state of the American church. And some of the things that they came up with were not good. So I'm just going to read some statistics. 69% of Americans disagree that the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 58% strongly disagree. 70% of the people in the American church disagree with the fact that one sin, like the sin, Okay, this is how ridiculous this is. You know what? I'm not. I'm going to resist. 70% of the people that claim to follow Jesus disagree with that statement. 52% believe that people are basically good. 51% believe that God accepts the the worship of all religions. 59% say that the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. I think we've been watching too many movies and not spending enough time in our Bibles. 78% believe that Jesus Christ was the first created being. You guys, this is not good. We do not know the God we claim to serve. We do not know the God we claim to serve. No wonder our lives are not characterized by peace. And this is heartbreaking to me. And I hope it's heartbreaking to you. A couple weeks ago, uh, we were talking in in 2 Thessalonians about um, false teachers and false prophets. And I made a a statement like, I could be one, right? Like, this is our job to watch out for these things. And, And I think I made my point, right? But I want to say something. I'm not. <laughs> right? My job. I talk a lot about what's not my job. Right? Because I want you guys to know what's your job as followers of Jesus. It is not my job to save your friends and family. That's Jesus' job. And it's your job to introduce them to Jesus. And to live out your calling as a follower of Jesus. Right? So this whole idea that, hey, if I just bring my, uh, my, my brother-in-law to church, or if I just bring my, uh, my friend that doesn't believe in Jesus, if I just bring him to church and he just gets to meet Sam, good luck with that, right? That's not my job. Here's what is my job. And this is why this is so heartbreaking to me. It is my job to train you. It is my calling. I believe in the pit of my stomach, I believe with everything that I am. As much as I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me, I believe that he has placed me here and has called me here to train you and to teach you about God. And so when I see these numbers, I'm heartbroken. And I think, how many people at Grace believe these things? Man, I hope none. But I'm not that naive. How can we expect 
to have the peace that he offers if we do not know him. Imagine your marriage, and if you found out things about your spouse that were not true, and you hear that, you hear that happen in relationships, and, and you hear the statement, I, didn't, I don't even think I know them. I don't really feel like I know them anymore. Why would they say that? Because the things that they believed about that person were not true. And so the person they thought they knew, they did not know. Does it, we understand that, right? So here's my contention. If we claim to know Jesus and yet we believe things about him over and over and over that are not true of him, we do not know him. And I want to be careful here. Because I truly believe in my heart of hearts that I have known Jesus since I was a child. There was a limit at that time to what I knew about him. So what I'm not saying here is that your theology better be perfect or you're not a Christian. That is not what I'm claiming here at all. But what I'm saying is it is our job to increase our knowledge of the one whom we claim to love more than anything, the one whom we claim to serve. Right? And when we see things that are out of whack, it's our job to correct them as best we can and to pull things back into the light as best we can. That's my job. That's my calling. So even before I saw these numbers, these numbers in this article just confirmed to me. Uh, Starting next week, we are going to start a new sermon series. um, And we are going to study him. We are going to study the God we claim to serve. And I'm going to do my best. We're going to talk about some things that um, you've probably never talked about. Some words that you've probably never pronounced, let alone heard, and you have no idea what they mean. And we're going to talk about them. And my humble exhortation to you is that um, you're going to be challenged. Don't disengage. Press in. We're going to talk about 20 different attributes of God. 10 ways that he is not like us and 10 ways that we are like him. The great big church word is uh, incommunicable and communicable attributes of God. And it's going to be 20 weeks. It's going to be broken up because we'll do a couple weeks for Christmas and we'll do a couple weeks for some other stuff. So it's going to be broken up. But um, I want us to know God. I want us to know who he is and just as importantly, who he is not. I want us to know what he is like and what he is not like. So we're going to spend a significant amount of time studying who he is. There's one thing that I can tell you that's true for my life and I think it's true that's said over and over and over in the scriptures is that the more we know him, the more we will love him and the more of his peace we will experience. So we know that, like James says, that faith without works is dead. What what James is saying there is if we believe something, that will dictate the way we act, right? All of us want peace. 
If we truly believe that Jesus is the source of the only peace that can possibly last through this world. With all the stuff that you and I face every day. If we truly believe that he is the source of that peace, we will pursue it. And our, uh, our refusal to pursue that peace doesn't make us bad Christians. It just reveals what we really believe. Right? Our hearts are split. Paul talks about this. The very thing I want to do, I don't do, right? Over and over and over he says this. Press in to Jesus. He is where we find our peace. And again, I would invite you to go home and start studying the attributes of God even before we get there. We're going to start next week. Even before we get there, I would invite you to start studying this so we can do it together. Uh, anytime we walk through a book, I always tell you guys, be reading this book, read through the chapters every week, so when you come on Sunday morning, you have an idea of where we're going, and we can go there together. It's not, easy to, it's not hard to find these things. Let's do it together. Let's pursue him together. Let's increase our knowledge of him together so that we can find peace that will sustain us through anything this world has to offer together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we ask that you would give us your peace. We believe, Lord Jesus, that you are the source of our peace. The only peace that can last. The only real peace. You are it. So, Father, we ask that you would draw us to yourself. We ask that as we study you, you would reveal yourself to us more and more and more. That we would not try to grab this peace, that we would not try to understand it, Father, but we would simply try to understand and know you. The author and source of our peace. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.